I'm trying to thrive. I received two messages last week from two different people, both of them mothers, going through some difficult things, but both of them said the same thing. I am trying to thrive. Both of them feeling the impact of what we saw last week as we first opened up 1 Peter. Both of them feeling that need and that call to thrive. Both of them feeling barely like they were surviving, let alone thriving. My first instinct when I got one of those messages, I'm trying to thrive, my first instinct was to say, well, stop trying. Maybe that's our problem, you know? Maybe the problem is we try too hard. I'm not sure that would be helpful. But I really think that's the problem we all face. We, we make Christian life, we make this faith about trying, and when we make faith about trying, it will inevitably be about failing. About two weeks ago, I preached a sermon. Some of you were here for it. I think you probably remember it. It was a sermon on gossip. And it seemed to really strike a note with a lot of people. And I'm talking within hours of preaching that message, I was getting text messages, I was getting phone calls, I was getting emails, and the next day I got visits. Danny probably got a visit or two also. People, it really seemed to connect about this problem with gossiping. And, and all of the messages were the same thing. I'm trying not to gossip. Yeah. I'm trying not to say those things. I'm trying to think about Christ instead of doing them. My kids are trying to remind me not to say those things. We make it about trying. And I bet for a couple of days you actually did. You catch yourself, I shouldn't say that. But the problem is that we end up making it all about altering my behavior. I'm going to try not to gossip. I'm going to try not to get discouraged. I'm going to try to, to keep my spirits up. I'm going to try not to get angry. I'm going to try to thrive. And suddenly it's all about us. And so we try and we fail and nothing really changes. I was thinking about this this week, and I was trying to think of a, a way to kind of illustrate this, and, and something came to me, so you know, just bear with me through this illustration. Maybe this impacts you or not, but can you imagine Trish and I, on an average school day, getting Connor up and getting Connor ready for school? And we get Connor up, sometimes Connor gets us up. We get Connor his breakfast, sometimes Connor gets his own breakfast. But... It comes down to time for us to get Connor ready to go to school, and so we get him in the bathroom, we get him all cleaned up, we brush his teeth, we get his clothes on him, we put his shoes on him, we put his backpack on him, and just before he leaves for school, I get down in Connor's face, and I take him by the shoulders, and I say, Connor, you're going to school. Try not to be autistic today. Just for the love of God, just please don't try not to be autistic today. Try not to make those noises. Try not to get distracted. Try not to flap your arms. Just try. Would that have any impact at all on Connor's behavior? Try not to gossip. <laughs> try not to get discouraged. Try not to get upset. Try to watch your anger. You see the problem? <laughs> it's part of our nature. 
I couldn't change Connor's nature by asking him to, to try. The reality is he would fail over and over again. Not being autistic is not in his nature. For Connor to not be autistic, Connor would have to be, well, he'd have to be born again. And he would have to be born without the genetic markers for autism. He would have to be born without the environmental variables that seem to lead to autism. He would have to be born without those things. So when we say we're going to try to not gossip, I'm going to try to not get discouraged, I'm going to try to be nice to people. <laughs> you see the problem? We're trying to change our behavior without ever changing our hearts. And here's the real problem for me. This is what I struggle with as your preacher. This is, this is the problem I really get into. Faith that makes you feel like you're not good enough, that's not worth having. Faith that makes you feel like you're not trying hard enough, like you can't do it, that faith is not worth having. Sermons on that kind of faith are not worth listening to. When we try to do it on our own, we miss the point completely. So I want to ask you, as I open up 1 Peter chapter 1, as I begin in verse 3, just listen to these words. Does this sound like try? Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time too often we we try to thrive on our own and when we do that sooner or later we will fail that kind of faith fails us but look closely at what Peter tells us here he tells us that the promise of God is a new life where we have been born to thrive. I love how Peter starts off this letter. He starts it off with praise. It, it tells me that he's got it right. And it isn't praise for something that's going to happen. It's praise for something that has already happened, something that has already happened that has changed everything. It's changed everything about him. It's changed everything about you. It's changed everything about me. And what Peter describes is the reality of this concept that we try to wrap our brains around that we call being born again. We say that. We say, I'm born again. I've been born again. That person's been born again. This person was just born again. We say that, but what does it really mean? And what does it really look like? He says in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. So I just got to ask right there, that's not about try, is it? That's not about try i mean you think about your first time you were born however long ago that was but when you were born the first time did you try to get born <laughs> you know were, were you trying you know maybe your parents were trying but but you weren't trying that wasn't you who was trying to be born the first time he has caused us to be born again and born again to a living hope that's a wonderful promise it's a horrible thing when hope dies isn't it it's a horrible thing when you put your hope in something that doesn't pan out, doesn't work out, or when you have that hope and then suddenly it's gone and your hopes are, are dashed. That is, a, that is a horrible thing. 
he begins with a living hope. And he points to our inheritance. He says in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Way back in verse 1, Peter addresses his audience as exiles. We talked about that in Sunday school today, that these people may have actually been scattered to a whole bunch of different places, that they were actually living far and far away from home. You think about exiles, you think about what it means to be exiled, you think about the Jews who were exiled from Germany and, and those surrounding regions back during the war, they had to escape with just what they could carry. They escaped with, with all that they had, carrying what they had. That was it. Any inheritance that was left for them in a bank, any inheritance that was hidden for them, any inheritance that they had back in their homes, they were gone. And they didn't receive those inheritances. They didn't receive what had been promised to them because of their family relationships or because of their businesses. Their hope became someone else's property. And what Peter tells us is your hope is your hope. You can never lose it. It can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. It is secure and it is kept in heaven for you. You see, if it's all about me, I can try and I can fail. I can try to hold on to what's mine, and I can end up losing it. But it's not about me. It's about what God has done for me. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In his mercy, he has worked a change in me. In his mercy, I have become born again, not to perish, not to become defiled, and not to just fade away, but I've been born again to thrive. Here's the problem, though. This world we live in, it is going to perish. This world we live in, it, it is defiled. It will fade. So how do we hold on to our inheritance and our hope without failing in this world? Peter shows us here that we do that with a, a faith that thrives. We do that with a thriving faith. We get into trouble when we talk about faith because we talk about faith as though it's a fragile thing. And, and for some of us, faith seems very fragile. We talk about losing our faith. We complain that our faith is weak. We worry that our faith will fade. We go through troubles. We go through very difficult times, and we stop and think, if I just had more faith, I wouldn't have to do this. If I just had more faith, I wouldn't be sick. If I just had more faith, I, I wouldn't be in this situation we think of faith in those terms. But what's Peter say here? Is that what the Christian life is all about? Is that what thriving is all about? Picking up again in verse 5, he says of you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Doesn't sound like faith is easy there, does it? Doesn't sound like we get a pass when it comes to difficulties or trials or, or tests. Or, it doesn't sound like like faith means not suffering. In fact, what Peter says there in verse 7 is that, te is that testing trials are necessary. Those things have to come 
to test the genuineness of your faith. That's not good news. <laughs> that doesn't sound like good news to me. But it's necessary so that our faith will be real. It's necessary so that faith will do what it needs to do. It's necessary so that faith can thrive. So what does faith actually do? When we talk about faith, what does faith really do? It, first of all, he says it guards us. If you go back to verse 5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. And what's actually happening is there's two things at work here. Uh, you are being guarded by God's power. God, the creator. God, the, the sustainer of life. God, the one who spoke it all into existence. God, the one who parted the, the Red Sea. God, the one who worked all of those amazing miracles through Jesus. God, who raised his son from the dead. You are guarded through faith by his power. But it's coupled with our activity. It's coupled by the way that we live out our faith. It's coupled by our faithfulness. The lives that we live, the character that we live, proves the power of God in our lives, and it guards us. But there's a second thing that faith does. You notice it there in verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and your faith is more precious than gold. Gold is tested. You know, gold goes through a fire and a refinement process that makes it pure, and yet it's still going to all perish in this world. But the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the result of faith. That praise, glory, and honor might result from our, from our faith. For faith to do that, it has to reach beyond the mess that we're in right now. It has to reach beyond the various trials that grieve us. Faith has to reach beyond our loss and, and our hurts and our heartbreaks. And it has to point ahead to something greater than us, greater than our hurts, greater than even our hopes and our dreams, it has to point to Jesus. It's not just that, that our faith results in praise, but our faith draws us to Jesus. He says in verses 8 and 9, he says of Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And again, does any of that sound like, I'll try. I'll try to do this. This is the problem that we find ourselves in. Our, our try is temporary. Our try is always based on how good your day is going right then. That's terrifying to think of. Because that means my try, even at its best, is still weak. My try, even at its greatest, is still very difficult. Our try is always in our weakness. But the promise of God is a thriving faith that changes you from the inside out. So if it's not about me trying, then how do I thrive? It's not about me just trying to be good, just trying to be a good person and trying not to say those things I shouldn't say and trying to do the things I should do. If it's not just about me trying, trying not to get discouraged, then how do I thrive? The fact is it's not easy. It's really about surrendering to God. It's about letting him change you from the inside out. It starts there in his actions for our lives. Remember in verse 3? that 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It starts there, and it looks ahead to that living hope, to the fulfillment of our faith in verse 7, where it says that your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. It's easy to look at the revelation of Jesus just in terms of end times and just say, well, Jesus is coming back again sometime. But the revelation of Jesus is not just about the end. The revelation of Jesus is what's happening inside you. Realize that? That more and more the image of Christ is being seen in you. More and more the life of Christ is coming out in you. When your faith is working, when your faith is doing what it's supposed to do, the image of Christ is being built in you. Now Peter gives us two pictures to kind of grasp what that's all about. And these, these pictures are difficult for us to imagine because they are two things that we have never seen. <laughs> they are pictures of two things that we have never seen and we've never really experienced. But he gives us these two pictures in verses 10 through 12. And he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, and when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, well, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. First illustration, the first little picture he gives us is of the, the prophets in the Old Testament. You think about those Old Testament prophets. You think about Isaiah, you know, 66 chapters in Isaiah. From the very beginning of Isaiah, we have this picture of Jesus. We, we have this image of him being born, that he's going to be born of a virgin. And we read through Isaiah. We come to those later chapters, and here's this incredible description of his suffering, that he will be wounded for our sins, that he'll be pierced, that he'll be crucified, that he'll be beaten by his stripes, by the stripes of the the whip, we will be healed. Isaiah prophesied that. Isaiah announced that. Isaiah never lived to see it. He never saw the faith, the hope that you and I have in Christ. And yet Isaiah realized, and, and Jeremiah, David, and the other prophets, they realized that, that this wasn't about them. It was about what Christ was doing for you. So the question becomes, like those prophets, how can I make sure that more and more of Christ is seen in me? Going through those trials that I face, going through those difficult moments, how can I make sure that more of Christ is seen in me? Because my trials may not actually be about me. They might be about letting Christ be seen by someone else who's never experienced that. That's, that's difficult. That's the picture there. That, that we try to make Christ more and more visible through our suffering, through the difficulties that we go through. The second illustration isn't prophets, but angels. And it's, it's an odd little mention that Peter men, makes here, and, and it's hard for us to grasp, but he says there in verse 12, he says of the prophets, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that, they have, that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says, things into which angels long to look. 
has it ever occurred to you that angels are envious of you? Has it ever occurred to you that angels are envious of your relationship with Jesus? Peter says they are. They long to look into the things that you have received. Angels, the Bible tells us that angels stand before the throne of God day in and day out in praise. That angels always look on the face of God. We're told that angels are there in the presence and in the holy place. They are present in the courts of heaven. But no angel ever had a Savior. No angel ever, ever knew Him as Savior. Angels stand there before the throne of God in never-ending praise to their Creator, but that is the only way they know Him, as their Creator. They don't know Him as their Savior. They don't know Him as their Lord. They don't know Him as someone who took on their nature. They don't know Him as someone who bled their blood. They don't know Him as someone who died for them, and they never will. They will never know Him as Lord and Savior. There's one other difference that the, between us and angels that, that I think angel, angels are envious of. And I think Peter's hinting at it here too. Angels don't grow in faith. Think about that. Angels do not grow in faith. For them, there is no journey. There's no journey of discovery what, of what God's love is like. There's no journey of discovering His grace. There's no journey of discovering His plan or purpose. They merely serve. They don't grow. So if they don't grow, they don't, go, they don't grow closer to Christ. They don't grow closer to God. There's never that moment in an angel's life where he wakes up one morning and suddenly goes, that's what grace is about. No, no event ever occurs in the life of an angel that, that draws him closer to the presence of God because he feels that from those that have surrounded him and, and blessed him through that. And I think what Peter is reminding us is not only does our, does our faith point to Jesus, but our faith points towards a journey to Jesus. He's saying, don't be sidelined. Don't let these trials that you're going to face keep you from that journey. Don't let them get you down. Don't let them turn you around. Keep going. We don't know what's happening in this coming week. We don't know what this coming week is going to be like for us. We don't know what the... We don't know what the tested genuineness of your faith is going to be like this week. But I want you to ask yourself, whatever, whatever is brought your way this week, I just want you to ask yourself, how can I see Jesus in this situation? You know, if we're honest, when we're faced with those different trials, we're not really looking for Jesus. We're looking for a way out. <laughs> we're looking for the easiest way. We're looking for the safest way. We're looking for the simplest way, the most painless way out of those trials. That's what we're looking for. That's what, that's what we're looking for first. And it may not be easy, but how can I see Him? How can I know His presence through whatever I'm facing this week? How can I know His comfort? How can I know His grace? How can I know His peace? And along with that, how can I make sure other people know that too? How can I make sure other people know the presence of Christ and see that in me? In other words, how do I let Christ thrive? How do I let Christ thrive in me and in this situation? That's what the journey's all about. That's what causes angels to look at you and wonder. I mean, there may be other things they wonder about when they look at us. But that's what causes them to envy us, that we are on a journey. 
That's why they listen in when you pour your heart out to Him in those deepest prayers. That's why they are amazed at that journey of faith. That's why they are amazed when they slowly see the image of Christ in you more and more clearly. And they are amazed at where He's taking you. They are amazed at the times when they look at you and they see the image of Christ thriving in you. Now it occurs to me that maybe that's a journey that you haven't started yet. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Peter tells us where that journey ends right here. He says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is the end of the journey, the salvation of your souls. Where does the, where does the journey begin? If you go back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter is speaking before a large crowd there in Jerusalem, and he's, he's just told them that through their actions and through their inactions, this Christ who they have crucified, uh, that, that that was God's man, that that was God's Messiah, and, and that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And they are cut to the heart because they realize their sin, and they ask Peter, what should we do? And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, Repent, every one of you, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent's one of those words that's kind of loaded for us, isn't it? It means a lot of things. Repent! But the very first thing that re repent means is turn around. You're starting a new journey. You're not going to be able to go the way you were going. You're not going to have to go the way you were going. You're starting a new journey. Turn around. Repent. Be baptized. Step into the water. And through this symbolic gesture, through this, through this symbolic time, allow yourself to identify fully with Christ. You're going to step into the water. You are going to be buried with Him in baptism. That old person of, of yours, that person that couldn't thrive because of what that person's nature was like, that person's going to be buried and what's going to rise again is a resurrected person who can thrive in faith. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's presence with you, His forgiveness, His purpose, and His direction as you start the journey. Do you want that? Do you want to thrive? We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. I just want you to consider, maybe today's the day you start that journey. Maybe today's the day where you say, I've been going the wrong direction. I didn't know what the problem was, but I think this is the right way for me to go. I want to turn around. I want to follow Christ. Maybe today's the day when you come forward and we pray about, with you about that. Hey, the baptistry's already filled up. Maybe today's the day when you step in and you say, this is the day when it all changes. This is the day when I start to thrive. And maybe you're sitting there saying, I can't do that. I would encourage you to grab someone's arm and say, you're coming with me because <laughs> I need to go there and I can't go on my own. What a wonderful day it would be to start that journey. What a wonderful day it would be to decide to follow Jesus. Let's pray.